Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Casey Barner and I'm here with my colleague Beth Allen. We work for the Benefits Compliance Department of NFP. On today's webcast, we're going to talk about what's left of the ACA. But on our podcast in general, we break down employee benefits related to topics that affect employers. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, you know that the ACA has been diminished quite a bit lately. Whether you call it the PPACA, the ACA, healthcare reform, or Obamacare, it's clear that we've seen a lot of changes to the law in the last 18 months. In fact, it seems like you can't open the paper without seeing a new article about either the Trump administration, Congress, or the courts considering getting rid of part of Obama's signature piece of legislation. With all that in mind, we wanted to discuss, again, what's left of the ACA. So, Beth, what's going on? Is the ACA still alive or is it on its deathbed? That's such a loaded question, Casey. Um, But before going into the current state of the ACA, I think it's important to go back and sort of remember what the ACA accomplished. Um, I actually worked at the DOL when the law was passed, and so it was kind of exciting times because it was a really big shift in how um, health insurance had been offered in this country. And so I always look at the ACA as kind of having three really large buckets. Um, The first bucket was the market reforms, and those provisions basically changed um, the insurance market and how insurance is offered um, as a whole. The second bucket I would consider is increased access to coverage. And so essentially the ACA sought to make sure that more people could be covered instead of, for example, having to go to the emergency room anytime they experienced some kind of sickness because they didn't have insurance. And then the final bucket um, is basically the different taxes and fees that were imposed by the ACA. And those are essentially the aspects of the ACA that pay for the first two buckets. Now, Beth, let me stop you right there. You know, I personally love the bucket analogy and how simple it is to place things into a category. But are you saying now we remember how big ACA is and how many pages it was when we first printed it out can be described just under those three headings? Now, come on, as with all major laws, you know, there were quite a few provisions that don't fall neatly into those categories. Um, and so there are transparency rules that were supposed to make uh, Medicare spending, you know, more transparent to the person who was who was buying it. Um, there are cost containment and quality improvement type rules. So, for example, you know, the medical loss ratio um, rebate that a lot of our employers receive from insurers is one of those type of provisions. And then finally, there was some uh, additional reporting rules um, that came out for both insurers and employers. And we're probably not really not going to get into those today. Okay, I see. I see. So we're going to let you off the hook today. We're basically going to focus on the major components of ACA and what has been done to change them. That's right. All right. So let's start with your first bucket, which was market reforms. What were those and how have they changed since they were enacted? I think this is the easiest part to, to explain. You know, this is the part of the ACA that people love. So the market reforms basically include the idea that pre-existing condition exclusions are now prohibited, right? So this is kind of what everybody knows about the ACA in that plans could no longer exclude people who had basically been sick before. And so this is a big part of the market reforms. Um, but then other things that are included in market reforms are things like the ban on lifetime and annual limits, um, the fact that you can now offer coverage coverage um, to employees to cover their children up to age 26, Um, the fact that there's now a a limit on the waiting period, and the fact that you can't rescind coverage retroactively. Um, There are also different kind of protections that were deemed patient 
protections that allow um, individuals to basically receive treatment um, in emergency care services or through a certain type of physician um, if their plan limited their treatment under those protections. And then finally, I think one of the ones that all of us also know about is the changes to preventive health services and the fact that you can now get your preventive care without cost sharing. Okay, so that's essentially all the things that we now just consider a part of health coverage or insurance. And no one really thinks that those are bad things, right, Beth? That's exactly right. You know, these are the parts of the ACA that have generally just been accepted by the insurers and employers. And a lot of those changes took effect even beginning in 2010. This is also the bucket of provisions for which we've seen the least amount of change. You know, all of these are still in effect, and it seems really unlikely that they're going to change in the future. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. We've all definitely seen the uproar that comes just because someone mentions the idea that Congress or the Trump administration might do something to chip away at, let's say, the pre-existing condition exclusion. Absolutely. You know, I think that the uproar from the country is also why, why we're likely to see very little change on the provisions in this bucket. Really, the only major thing that has been changed about this bucket is that the Trump administration has has issued a rule that allows more employers to claim a religious or moral objection to providing contraceptives. But preventive services is just one aspect of the market reforms, and the contraceptive mandate is even just one subset of the preventive services mandate. Not only that, but there were pretty much immediate lawsuits on that issue that have essentially halted the Trump administration's rules on that exception. So entities that want to limit coverage of contraceptives will want to proceed with caution and possibly even obtain legal advice. Yes, Beth, those lawsuits have been very interesting to follow. So what about your second bucket moving right along and increased access? Right. So we talked about the fact that the second bucket has to do with the increased access that the ACA provided. Um, And I think that the ACA did this in two pretty large ways, right? So the first way is Medicaid expansion, which basically allows more individuals to be eligible for Medicaid um, by allowing individuals with larger family income to participate in Medicaid. The second way um, that access to the ACA was increased was form the ACA formed exchanges, and that's where individuals can get coverage through a state or federal exchange and can even get a subsidy to participate in those exchanges. Both of those were seen as ways that people would be able to access coverage if they were sick. Okay, I got it. And I know we hear a lot about Medicaid expansion, even here in our great state of Texas, where there has been none, no expansion, that is. But just how many states have expanded Medicaid? At this point, um, 34 states have adopted rules expanding Medicaid. Three states are even in the process now of attempting to expand Medicaid. And 14 states have not expressed any interest in doing so. And Texas is one of those states who has expressed no interest in doing so. Yeah, that's interesting. So has anything really changed about Medicaid expansion? Um, Not really. You know, we have seen that more states have offered it. Um, But I will say that some states are looking for a way to further restrict it. So, for example, we've seen a number of states push to impose a work requirement on Medicaid individuals. Um, Now, CMS has been approving state Section 1332 waivers to allow states to do that. However, in a somewhat exciting turn of events, a federal district court judge in Kentucky just blocked that state's Medicaid waiver that imposed work requirements. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how the Trump administration fights that uh, decision and to see if states are able to continue to impose work requirements in the future. Okay, Beth, so we're still in your second bucket, but maybe the second part of that bucket. Where are we on the exchanges of the marketplaces? They're pretty much still there, you know, and as we all know, the states took different approaches. So 11 states um, 
chose to run a state-based marketplace, marketplace, and that's 11 states plus D.C. Um, five states offer a state-based marketplace, but they use healthcare.gov for their enrollment. 17 states just allow the federal government to offer a federally facilitated marketplace. And then another 17 states offer a federally funded or federally facilitated marketplace, but the state actually conducts plan management. So individuals who cannot gain coverage through an employer or through one of the governmental plans can still get coverage through the marketplace. Okay, we got that. We understand that. And they can even obtain a tax subsidy to pay for that coverage. But hasn't the Trump administration been pulling back on the marketplace in other ways? Yeah, a a few things occurred on that front um, and pretty much right at the beginning of the Trump administration. And so one of those things is that CMS cut the period of time for open enrollment in the marketplace. And so it used to be that you could pretty much enroll from November to a time period in January to participate in the marketplace in a given year. Um, The Trump administration cut that down to just kind of a month-long period that goes between November and December um, that people have to basically enroll. Another change is that they basically required individuals to go through greater links to kind of, to certify that they have experienced a special enrollment event. Surprisingly, before this rule, they didn't actually require people to provide any kind of documentation that said that they experienced a special enrollment event. They would just have to certify that they did so. Um, and so making this change makes it to where it's less easy to actually claim that you have a special enrollment event on the marketplace. And then finally, the Trump administration did cut funds to navigators who are the people who help um, people enroll on the marketplace. And at this point, uh, funds have been cut from as much as $63 million down to $10 million. Now, there are competing ideas as to whether or not the navigators were actually, one, useful, um, or whether or not they even caused less people to enroll in the exchanges. But that, that is a change that was made. Okay, so I hear you talking about these two buckets and how they haven't changed very much. So why are so many people contending that the ACA is on its last breath? This brings us to our third bucket, and that's the bucket that kind of involves taxes, fees, and government payments that were intended to pay for the market reforms and the increased access and coverage. I know a little something about these taxes, fees, and government payments, so let's make this fun if you're willing to indulge me, Beth. Let's make this bucket somewhat of a rapid response. You game? I'm game. All right, so the individual mandate, where are we? It's repealed as of January 2019, so people don't have to have coverage anymore as of then. Um, Many people believe that that's going to really cause a problem because all the healthy people are basically going to choose not to have coverage. But it remains to be seen whether or not that's really going to be the quote-unquote death spiral that some are claiming it will be. And what about, my friend, the employer mandate that's causing us such pain? Is it safe? It's still on the table for now, but every now and then, um, Republicans discuss possibly trying to repeal it. Um, But Senate Republicans are definitely having a hard time getting 51 votes on anything these days, let alone a big part of the ACA. So it seems like it'll stay, especially if the midterms change the majority of either the House or the Senate. Perfect. Reinsurance fee, the PCORI, and the HIT, or the health insurance tax, and our good friend, the Cadillac tax. What do you got for me? So these are interesting, I think, because the reinsurance fee and the PCORI fee actually had sunset dates that were written into the ACA. And so, for example, reinsurance ended in 2016, but that wasn't by anybody's extra action. That was just the way it was written. The PCORI goes until 2019, but then that will end. Um, The HIT tax actually got a one-year moratorium from 2018, 
but it's it's not permanent. And so it will continue in 2019 um, to go on. And then finally, the Cadillac tax was actually um, pushed along to not be effective until 2022, but there are a lot of industry groups that are lobbying against the Cadillac tax. So we'll see if that is something that actually goes into effect or not. Yeah, 2022 doesn't sound so far away, if you ask me. Cost-sharing reduction payments. I think this is a huge change and kind of bears us slowing down just a bit. Um, one of the This part of the ACA basically allowed for low-income individuals to receive additional assistance on out-of-pocket payments like coinsurance. Um, the insurer would basically provide the discount, and then the government would reimburse the insurer. Well, in the end of 2017, the Trump administration announced that it would no longer fund the CSR payments. And so that basically leaves Congress to have to come up with a bipartisan agreement to resume those payments. And that obviously has not happened yet. And there's there's nothing really getting through Congress these days. But also on the chopping block are the risk adjustment payments, right? Right. So risk adjustment payments are slightly different from CSRs in that it's money, again, from the government to insurers who cover sicker populations. And the Trump administration actually just announced like a few weeks ago that they're not going to pay those payments either. So, Beth, if I heard you correctly, it sounds like a lot of the parts of the ACA are still intact. And those are the parts that some would say they love. But they are also the parts of the ACA that increase costs without safeguards like the individual mandate and the payments to insurers. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's pretty much my exact analysis of it all. And it's kind of why people are concerned about the insurance market. You know, now I don't want to put it past Congress to try to get something done um, because some of the senators, like Senator Susan Collins, have never given up on the idea of passing some sort of bipartisan legislation that would allow for insurers to be paid the needed funds to continue to offer coverage to those who are sick. But at the end of the day, I don't know if any of us trust that Congress is going to get something done. So what about some of the miscellaneous stuff that has been going on? For example, everyone seems to be talking about what to do with association health plans, or we call them AHPs, and you know we've even recorded some podcasts on those forms of health plans. How do those change the ACA? Is that something that plays a role in this conversation today? That's hard to say. You know, the association health plan rules are designed to allow smaller employers to band together to buy insurance. On one hand, the Trump administration definitely believes that the AHP regulations will increase the numbers of small businesses that could enroll in coverage and that that will actually lower costs for them. On the other hand, it's interesting because the AHP expansion also allows those plans to enroll people in coverage that's not minimum value. So there are opponents of the rule that believe that offering access to AHPs is only going to somewhat offer a skinnier product to individuals who are in the small and individual market. Well, and then there's the ever-present threat of litigation. Isn't there some huge lawsuit now that is challenging the ACA as unconstitutional? Yeah, and it's definitely not the first, um, and it might not be the last, but the litigation that you're talking about is the Texas versus United States case, and essentially that state that case was filed by 20 states, and it's arguing that because Congress actually um, repealed the individual mandate, that the rest of the ACA is unconstitutional. So the idea is that basically the individual mandate cannot be separated from the rest of the ACA. Now, most legal scholars who have looked at this argument do think it's a weak one because the idea is that if the argument is that the ACA provisions cannot be separated from the individual mandate, then it means it seems interesting that Congress was just able to pass a law that did exactly that. So the fact that the tax law actually changed 
um, the ACA to repeal the individual mandate and left everything intact makes it less likely that you're going to have an argument that the rest of the ACA is unconstitutional. Now, to add a monkey wrench into the whole thing, the Trump administration came out saying that they're not going to defend the lawsuit, right? So that kind of makes it a little bit dramatic. And there were apparently a bunch of career DOJ employees who left the DOJ over that decision. Um, But we'll just have to watch it and see what happens. Yeah, that's really interesting, Beth, to see how the administration is handling issues that have to do with the ACA. Yeah, it does make for noteworthy entertainment. But I mean, I think the reality is that the bulk of the ACA changes are here to stay. Um, Because it becomes harder and harder to take away something people are used to, you know? That's why there's such a big fight about entitlements. But we'll really just have to watch to find out what it means for the viability of the insurance industry as a whole. That's right, Beth. We'll continue to see how this all plays out. For now, the ACA appears to be alive and well, but it's definitely weakened. And on that note, we'll say thank you to all who have listened today. And as we customarily say, that's a wrap.